Welcome to Embargo, the podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming, and I'm here with my co-host, friend, and colleague, Mr. Tim O'Toole, on a slightly somber note here this this Friday, uh, June 5th, uh, after what's been going on. But how's it going, Tim? It's going okay, Brian. A lot going on in Washington right now. A lot going on. That is the understatement of the uh, of the decade, I think, uh, so far from Mr. O'Toole. But um, but yeah, but thank I try you to be to, very very understated. Try to be understated and measured. That's that's our those are the watchwords that we go with here on this program. Um, thank you to everybody for for joining us today. Um, this will be this is we're recording this again Friday, June five. This will be posted uh, the normal time next week on Tuesday, the ninth. Um, and uh, thanks to everybody who especially who's listened to the past couple of episodes, the China Stravaganza and the Huawei uh, episodes. We've gotten a lot of good feedback. Not surprisingly, I think we're gonna continue to do a lot of China content today and, and going forward. Um, and so before we do get started, just the normal uh, disclaimers, we're not here giving legal advice. We're not using or discussing any confidential information. Um, and if you do enjoy the pod, we certainly encourage everybody to subscribe, to give us a rating. Uh, hopefully a five-star rating, and uh, to check us out wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, watch us on YouTube so you can make fun of uh, the fact that Tim and I may never get a haircut again uh, while the pandemic is in effect. Um, and uh, yeah, we really, again, appreciate all the all the feedback and support that we're getting from everybody out there. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I think... Um, Here's the quick roadmap for today, and then we're actually going to do a little prelude before we get into the meat of the episode. So we are going to start, um, not surprisingly, with Hong Kong and uh, the big announcements that uh, have come out of the U.S. with respect to Hong Kong and some changes coming there, and, and more broadly, the prospect of significant sanctions on China that could be coming down the road. Uh, we're then going to go revisit uh, topic number one from last time, Huawei, and a couple of new developments there that we want to touch on. And then the last big item we're going to hit is the um, a massive indictment that just uh, was unsealed last week relating to a uh, huge sanctions evasion and money laundering scheme out of North Korea. Um, and that'll wrap up sort of the, the main portion of the program. And then the lightning round, we're going to hit uh, Venezuela, uh, Iran again, and wrap up with um, some curious goings on with respect to the BIS entity list. And that'll be, so that'll be our show today. Um, before we do that though, uh, as I indicated, um, we do have a little prelude uh, and uh, that relates not surprisingly to uh, the news that has been dominating the headlines here in the US and really around the globe for the last couple of weeks, um, which is uh, the protests that have been sparked by the killing of George Floyd while in police custody in Minneapolis on May 25th. Um, Tim and I had a discussion, a very brief discussion, because we were of the same mind here, whether or not we should sort of directly discuss this on the show, but um, I think it was abundantly clear to both of us that we really had to for a couple of reasons. Um, I think, first of all, um, as you're going to hear in just a few moments, um, when we get to the Hong Kong portion of the show, 
Um, the U.S. Uh, measures taken with respect to Hong Kong are in reaction to a new law being passed that has been passed in Beijing and the perceived lack of autonomy in Hong Kong in the cracking down on protesters and human rights violations that um, that have been seen in conjunction with that. And not surprisingly, China has um, responded to the protests here in the U.S. by uh, using that as a talking point to sort of undercut the moral authority and legitimacy of the U.S. actions that are being taken toward Hong Kong. So uh, whether we like it or not, we were going to be talking about this anyway. Secondly, in recent days, there has been some rumblings out of the U.K., obviously one of the closest U.S. allies, that um, exports of riot gear and other types of uh, police uh, equipment, law enforcement equipment, should be suspended or severely restricted to the U.S. in light of the response to the protests that have been going on here. Uh, so, again, uh, these things are inextricably li linked. Our podcast is about current events. It's about policies. It's about politics. It's about all of those things as they relate to the world of international trade. And so I think there's, there is no escaping this, as there's no escaping this for any of us right now. Beyond that, though, um, on a sort of more uh, direct level, um, our offices in downtown DC are a block away from Lafayette Park and um, the White House, which is um, you know where much of the action in DC has been focused, where the tear gassing of the protesters occurred the other night. And so, um, again, we, we felt uh, a responsibility to at least acknowledge that and to talk about it in some form or fashion as, um, as responsible members of the legal community and as criminal defense lawyers um, who know the justice system and, and many of the inequities that exist there, we did feel a need to, um, to address this at the outset. So with that, I'm going to um, turn it to Tim to add a few comments before we get into the meat of the show. Thanks, Brian. And, and you know, we did talk yesterday and, and just decided that we couldn't be silent about what's happening. Um, I know that we both want to be very careful because we are treading outside of our comfort zone. Um, and I think, you know, I, I want to be very clear up front. We live in a great country. But the story of our country is that tomorrow is always better than yesterday. Things get better. There's a progression. We started as a country that enshrined slavery in the Constitution. We fought a war to end that, but then we enshrined white supremacy into law for 100 years. And then we had a civil rights struggle that eliminated the legal framework for white supremacy, but the problem continued and the events of the past few days indicate and, and make very clear that, that racism still is a fundamental American problem, especially when it comes to the police. It, it's a problem that has very deep roots. The police were used before the Civil, the civil War to uh, find fugitive slaves. After the Civil War, they were a primary tool to enforce the, the legal framework of white supremacy. Um, they, they even looked the other way when there were, was a horrible problem of lynching in the United States um, that was, had gotten so bad that the federal government thought about passing anti-lynching laws, although at the time, those laws had a tough time getting through the, the, Senate, uh, the Senate. So while the problem has gotten better over time, we have never really dealt with it and we've never rooted it out. And it's a deep-seated, long-standing problem that we've chosen not to address. And, and let's make clear, it's, it's a choice. The killing of George Floyd 
the horrible killing of George Floyd is a symptom of that problem, but it's not the only symptom of that problem. There's a steady drumbeat of, of killings that, by the police that haven't been addressed and by vigilantes. Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, it's, it's, it's not one and it's, it's, not a, it's, a, it's a pattern. And, and it's something that, that I've seen, I was a public defender for many years and, and I've seen it many, many times. It, in my responsibilities as a public defender. I'll give you just a couple of examples. In one of the first cases that I had when I was a young public defender, I represented a, a young man, an African-American man from, from Camden, New Jersey named Thomas Medias. And at Thomas's trial, he was uh, accused of, of uh, a, a terrible crime uh, involving a, a white victim. And before the, the trial, the prosecutor struck all the African-Americans from the jury and then bragged about it to defense counsel afterwards actually said, didn't think I wanted any of those people, and that was not the word that he used, on the jury. We, while we ultimately overturned Tommy's death sentence, we were never able to get a court to actually deal with that issue, even though it was undisputed. And in fact, we wound up getting an affidavit from the, the training person in the, the Clark County DA's office at the time. Um, who verified that that was a practice of that office whenever they had a, a case involving a, a black defendant and a white victim. And so, so I saw that very early in my career. Uh, I dealt with it recently in the Evangelista Ramos case where our firm and, and I worked with Sarah Dowd, who, who you, you and I both have worked with quite a bit, Brian, um, in, in addressing uh, the issue of non-unanimous jury verdicts in, in, uh, in Louisiana, and part of our brief talked about how that practice had arisen um, from the uh, Jim Crow era, uh, where the Jim Crow Congress in Louisiana, uh, in, in around the turn of the, the 20th century, um, got together and uh, figured out laws that could be used to keep African Americans from using any of the civil rights that they gained after the, the, the Civil War. And one of the things that they chose to do was to allow non-unanimous jury verdicts. And we documented that history for the Supreme Court. We've actually spent about the last 10 years doing it. We filed multiple briefs in, in cases before the Supreme Court granted cert. And ultimately, um, some of that history wound up in the Supreme Court opinion that in which the Supreme Court recently struck down um, the non-unanimous uh, jury practice as violative of the Sixth Amendment. So, so we'd seen it in, in our careers as, I've seen it as my career as a PD, we'd seen it, you know, at Miller and Chevalier. And, and I think, um, you know, this sort of practice, when allowed to fester, creates this expectation of immunity, it, 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 an expectation that uh, there's a message to the police from all of society that uh, some lives just don't matter, that they, you can cast them away. And if you watch the video of George Floyd, I mean, it is eight minutes and 46 seconds, which, you know, when you do a pause, if you st stand for 30 seconds, that's long, eight minutes and 46 seconds. And you can watch from that video and see that there's just no expectation that there will ever be any consequences. And it sends the message that these lives just don't matter, that they can be cast away like they're nothing. And obviously, that's wrong and it's gone on too long and it's created all this anger and, and the anger that you talked about, Brian, that, that we've seen in terms of the, the, the protests that are right out, outside our office. Um, and we haven't done anything to change it, or at least, at least we haven't done enough to change it. And I think that, you know, to the extent that people think that it's, it's not our problem and that it doesn't affect us, um, it is our problem. And, and I think that, uh, you know, that's something that 
it's on us if we don't change it because we have the means to change it. We, we live in, in a democracy and a democracy values peaceable assembly and it values petitioning your government. And, and we do have the power to make change. Now, that is a, the right of protest is something that, uh, as you pointed out, Brian, we've recognized in our trade rules. That is that, that our trade rules say if a, if a dictatorship, if, if an authoritarian regime takes actions to crack down on protests, we won't send them certain goods. We will not, there, there is an entire export control category that is, is labeled as, um, it, it's, it's crowd control. We won't send crowd control equipment <laughs> to authoritarian regimes because we're worried that they will use it on their own people. And that's wrong. And I think we as Americans have taken the position that it's wrong, but, but now we have other countries coming to us and, and telling us that they're not going to send us crowd control equipment because of the events that we saw happen in, in Lafayette Park last week. And, and I think that that is, that is, is something that um, we need to, to have a reckoning with. And I think it's, it's a time to think about all these issues, a time to, to really reflect on what we can do about these issues. And unfortunately, and I, it's, it's a time when we need to, to figure out how we can, can change things for the better because you know, after, you know, 150 years after the Civil War, it, it really is time to start, start fixing things. Well said. Uh, we'll leave it, we'll leave it there for now and, and now return you to our regularly scheduled program. Um, but as Tim said, uh, you know, um, something we're, that we're all thinking about now uh, and certainly will be uh, thinking and working on for the foreseeable future. So, um, so with that, let's let's get into uh, the main part of the episode today, which, as I said at the outset, is is Hong Kong and the big announcement with respect to Hong Kong. So we we started discussing this, or this was starting to um, this was starting to fester uh, when we recorded the last uh, episode, which um, came just on the heels of the announcement that there was going to be a uh, security law passed in Beijing that was going to um, that was going to further compromise the autonomy of Hong Kong and, and its people. And the rumbling started immediately in uh, the US government that there was going to be some actions being taken to uh, to reckon with that. And so sure enough, uh, that came to pass uh, soon soon thereafter, the State Department issued a report to Congress um, pursuant to um, the, uh, the Hong Kong, uh, the, the recently, uh, amended Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act from last year, uh, that essentially certified that Hong Kong was no longer autonomous from China. And thereafter, uh, the president announced there was going to be big, a big announcement, um, late last week. So that announcement came a week ago on May 30th. And, um, it is, it was heavy on, rhetoric light on details. Um, but I think we're going to get into in a moment sort of uh, parsing what was said and what's been promised and what that really means. So um, it was in many ways kind of an airing of grievances with China generally. There was complaints about the World Health Organization, the COVID response, IP theft, um, many of the things that we hear the president and the government generally um, accusing China of and complaining about with respect to China. But at the end of the day, the, the real pointed portion of the statements and, and what everybody has kind of latched onto is, is the promise now that, the, that Hong Kong's special status vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. as a trade partner, 
and otherwise is going away by virtue of uh, the new law that was passed by the Chinese government and the, again, the, um, the resulting now lack of autonomy in Hong Kong uh, in the eyes of the US. And so <laughs> what does that mean? Well, for in broad strokes, that means that sort of customs uh, preferences and, and, and duties and things of that sort are, are likely going away. Um, visa um, treatment going, special visa treatment going away for travel purposes, both in and out. Um, and uh, in our world, export control rules will be changing and the promise of sanctions, additional sanctions. Um, now, I think at, in, at a broad level, we presume that essentially, Hong Kong is now going to be treated just like China with respect to export controls and customs and things like that. And we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of episodes, obviously talking about some of the um, some of the uh, pretty uh, the recent uh, sort of harsher restrictions that the U.S. has been imposing on China with respect to all those measures. On the sanctions front, we started last time to discuss what that might look like with respect to China. And, uh, and it, one thing we didn't talk about too much the last time is that this, the, the, um, the law that was passed last year, the Hong Kong um, Human Rights and Democracy Act, uh, which was just enacted in November, that has a, that has a sanctions component to it. Um, at the time, the president sort of signaled that he wasn't really planning to deploy that. Um, and it is pretty narrow, it is really, about um, going after Chinese officials or Hong Kong officials who are part of the um, rendition, arrest, extradition, uh, or or of Hong Kong, you know, demonstrators and and protesters or people who are involved in gross human rights violations. So it's pretty narrow. Um, the the sort of the stick that we think is coming that we talked about last time is that the if there are new sanctions that are imposed via an executive order or even congressionally, that, that the financial institutions and the financial infrastructure of Hong Kong, which is so central to Hong Kong's identity, will now be in the crosshairs and will be implicated and will be tied into whatever measures are going to be imposed. So at present, we don't know again what that's gonna look like. This is still too early because we're a week out from the announcement. We have no further detail. Um, but I think, let me throw it to you, Tim, especially on the sanctions front, sort of what do we, what do you take from the president's statements? What do we think, what do we expect on the sanctions front? What do we expect on the export controls front? Um, and, and more broadly, and, and do we have any sense, do you have any feel for what kind of timetable we're talking about on any of this? Because this has obviously put a lot of people on edge on opposite sides of the globe and, uh, or, or really all over the globe, as with, again, with Hong Kong as a financial hub. Uh, so what do, we, what do we make of all this and what do, we, what do we think could be coming next? So there's, there's a lot in play, I think, because the, but the combination of the 1992 law and the 2019 law and uh, the Secretary of State's certification that, that Hong Kong is now not sufficiently autonomous from China add up to the possibility that Hong Kong will start to be treated exactly like China for all sorts of purposes, export control purposes, uh, it, 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 um, it, sanctions could be imposed against uh, Hong Kong leaders who, who go along with these, these uh, Chinese security laws and security measures. 
So there really is the possibility all the way from kind of these limited targeted sanctions against you know, Chinese officials or potentially some Hong Kong officials, all the way up to a complete changing of the tariffs and essentially taking the trade war against China to the, the turning it into an, also a trade war against Hong Kong, which would be a huge expansion because of Hong Kong's importance in, in all sorts of trade issues. It's really hard to tell what's going to happen out of that because all we have is kind of this bare bones certification from the Secretary of State and some statements from the President that are, are vague about what could be done. And I, I do think that you have to view this as part of the, the, what we've been talking about for the last two or three episodes, which is there is an overall, um, there is an overall dispute with China. This, this administration has decided that China is going to be their focus, at least internationally, for the next uh, six months. And so this is part of it. Um, I do think that, the, that in terms of um, the timing, on the one hand, I, I think that the, the Chinese have forced the issue by taking the security law um, that was originally put in front of Hong Kong's uh, legislature, Hong Kong's um, uh, ruling ruling body, and and uh, taking it to the Chinese legislature and passing it at a time I think that they were hoping that there would be little notice, um, and I so I think that China has forced the issue by essentially escalating the, the issue of Hong Kong's autonomy to a relatively urgent issue. Uh, on the other hand, um, I think that their timing in some sense was intentional because they thought that the president might be distracted by other events that are going on here. On the other hand, I mean, their timing is actually pretty good given what's going on here, <laughs> because because um, it become in the current circumstances, it becomes a lot harder for the U.S. to complain about China cracking down on a, a, a semi-autonomous area like Hong Kong using the Chinese military when the U.S. is turning the U.S. military in a semi-autonomous region like the District of Columbia against its own people here. Yeah, I mean, not surprisingly, the Chinese sort of state media outlets are gleefully reporting on what's going on in the U.S. and are, uh, you know, calling us the biggest us, you know, the big royal us, the, um, you know, the biggest hypocrites going uh, as a result, you know, so um, that may resonate with some, not with others, but that is sort of where we find things at the moment. Um, another related point is, and an interesting one is, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, sort of think pieces and other commentary on this and, and curious to hear your thoughts. You know, there's obviously in, in many of, in, in much the same way that in the Huawei restrictions and some of the other military and user restrictions, the things we've been talking about now for the past several months, but really, especially the past month, that there's a school of thought that at the end of the day, this is going to hurt U.S. interests as much, if not more, than it's going to hurt China's interests. Um, and are we sort of cutting off our nose to spite our face here? The same, I think, thinking prevails here, which is, are we just going to be harming Hong Kong, which is a right. bit of an, and, and, and all of the companies and individuals that are, that have taken root in Hong Kong and found it to be sort of their, um, their foothold in, in Asia and to, to conduct their operations, are we going to be 
um, are we going to be doing unnecessary damage to them at the expense for what may end up being very little deterrence or ultimate um, impact on Beijing? Um, is this going to cause some kind of a flight out of Hong Kong and for others to find other lo locales? And I know we have some thoughts on where they may go. And I saw Boris Johnson make a statement the other day that he's welcoming people back to the UK if they want to leave Hong Kong under under whether it's the the new security law or or the you know the fallout from new sanctions or other restrictions the U.S. imposes or whatever the case may be. So what do we think? What do we make of that? Because I think those ripple effects are going to be um, are a little hard to discern right now, and are also going to ultimately, I think, be telling in terms of how how much uh, follow through there's going to be on this from the U.S. side. Right. I mean, I I think that the from the U.S. side, there's kind of a very tight rope to walk because. On the one hand, I, I do think that what China has done over the last six months with respect to Hong Kong has really weakened Hong Kong's position in the international finance community. And we've talked about this quite a bit offline. Um, you know, I, I, Hong Kong is a huge financial center, but there are other financial centers in that part of the world, like Singapore, that uh, are not potentially going to be controlled by China in the same way that Hong Kong seems to be starting to be controlled by Hong Kong. And I think that that could prompt, um, that could really hurt Hong Kong in, a, in the short, medium and long run in terms of its ability to be the, tra the sort of trading hub that it's been for, for hundreds of years now. So what, do, what you know, our, our goal is the United States, I think our stated goal is to make things better for Hong Kong, to help Hong Kong in this. And so, you know, by, pushing back against the security law, then, then maybe we do help Hong Kong because if, if, the, if, if, the, if it maintains its autonomy, that I think would be the best result in the long run for Hong Kong. But if, it, if it's not gonna maintain its autonomy anyway, or if we essentially help the Chinese by turning Hong Kong into China, so we essentially take what they've done with a security law and strip away one aspect of Hong Kong's autonomy and, and basically say, okay, fine, the autonomy is gone. We're going to treat you as the same. I think that probably will hasten the problem that's happening to Hong Kong because if, if the United States and other Western countries start treating Hong Kong as part of China, in some sense that plays right into China's hand and probably speeds up the phenomenon. Now, I'm not sure what beyond that we can really do about it. And so, so I, 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 take the point that I'm sure would be kind of thrown back at me from people who are proponents of these sorts of laws that, that you, you have to do something. But I, I think that this, this something, unless it's really carefully thought out, um, could make things worse and, and not better. Yeah. I think the, I think the sort of the, we, we say this a lot, but I, I think it's particularly true here. The devil's going to be in the details to some degree as, as the, uh, the sanctions, whatever sanctions may be coming and, and the signals have been that it's going to be pretty narrow. It doesn't sound like there's going to be some sweeping massive sanctions effort that or program that's going to be stood up to deal with this. It sounds like it's going to be pretty narrow, but um, you know, we don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know how it's going to be deployed. Uh, like, like other, like the original, like the Hong Kong bill from last year, there was, uh, you know, there was a 180 day reporting requirement that was supposed to identify who the officials were that were responsible for these human rights violations. That deadline, I believe, just came like two weeks ago and there's no report. And so there's nobody that's been sanctioned. And that's not surprising with respect to the last um, bill. But it's it's again, it's sort of there can be um, 
what kind of action is actually going to be taken here and, and sort of how much that may incite the Chinese to retaliate or take additional measures, would that cause them to walk away from the trade deal? Would that, that I, that was obviously a big concern originally that um, whatever was going to be passed with respect to Hong Kong last year could um, sully uh, the trade deal. But now with phase one of the trade deal kind of, on wobbly, you know, on wobbly legs anyway, and with phase two sort of nowhere in sight, um, it's hard to know whether those things are still going to be um, drivers or whether um, that's even leverage if China says they'll walk away. I, I, it's hard to hard to forecast. I would, on a related note, and to pivot slightly, also just recently there was another with respect to China and sanctions. There was another bill that was just passed that has not yet made its way to the president's desk, which is the Uyghur. Um, Human Rights Policy Act, which uh, seeks to impose uh, sanctions on, again, certain Chinese officials and others who are involved in um, the uh, the camps and the other sort of repressive tactics that are being used against the Uyghurs and other uh, Muslim and ethnic minorities in China. Um, and this passed near unanimously through the House, the Senate version passed, and um, and, and this, too, has a pretty narrowly focused sanctions component to it, which, again, requires an 180-day report identifying who the people are that are responsible for this, these, this treatment and, and, you know, provides for blocking and other measures to be taken against them, sort of traditional sanctions measures. So um, what do you make of that? Do we think that um, is this something the president will sort of sign with vigor or is it going to linger or, I mean, it's, it's a veto proof bill because of the majorities it passed with in both houses. Uh, so presumably it is going to get signed at some point, but, um, but what do you, what do you make of that? And does that change the calculus at all with respect to the bigger picture with the U S and China sanctions sort of uh, at the moment? Yeah. I mean, I, so, so I, I think the president will sign it. I think it. the president will probably say something about China that is kind of another small poke in the eye to, to China about this issue. I, I doubt that this is gonna be a big sanctions program. Um, I think it'll probably be more along the lines of some of the Nord Stream 2 sanctions that we've seen over the course of time that have kind of just bubbled up. Congress has passed them, the president signed them, and then we never hear about Nord Stream 2 again and, until a few years later or a few months later when Congress says we need more sanctions about Nord Stream 2. I think it, the, the Uyghur, Uyghur bill will likely be like that. There's a few people that'll be sanctioned, but I don't think it's going to be amount to much of anything. Yeah. So uh, one final thought on this, and then we should probably move on. But um, as we discussed the last time, um, the president and OFAC are perfectly capable right now of sanctioning whomever they want relating to Hong Kong or the Uyghurs under the Global Magnitsky Act for human rights violations, exactly. period, full stop. They could add whomever they want to the SDN list on that basis alone if they wanted to, which strongly suggests to us that this is in some ways largely a symbolic measure that is not necessarily going to have the teeth that some would like to see it have. I think, and we will come to this later on when we talk a bit more about um, the big North Korea related indictment that, that was unsealed recently, if they were ever going to give this some real teeth, they would have to go after the banks. They would have to go after the Chinese yep. banks who are sort of, who are behind many of the activities that the U.S. cites as being the, the most troubling and concerning. And there has so far been a resistance to do that. 
because presumably they are worried about the repercussions and the ripple effects there in terms of what China would do or, um, you know, what kind of tension that would create to the diplomatic relationship such as it is at the moment, which is not to sit, which is not very good. Um, but I, I, so, so some of this, I, I don't want to go so far as to say that these bills are just total window dressing, but unless there's something with some real teeth that's going to be implemented with some real vigor that goes after some of those actors, I don't think that the needle's really going to be moved all that much on the sanctions front with respect to China. Yeah, fully agree. And, and you know, just to, to be clear, when I talked about the president poking China's eye with respect to the Uyghurs, I, that shouldn't diminish the problem that is going on in China with respect to the Uyghurs. I mean, it's a terrible problem. I just think that these sanctions, as they're written, um, aren't going to amount to much because, as you point out, Brian, the authority already exists to impose these sorts of sanctions. So we could impose them now if we wanted to, even before Congress passes a law. But I, I think you're, to your other point, that is um, the the broadening these sanctions to financial institutions. I mean, that really is, I think, a, a huge part of the dynamic as to what's going on. If we really want to get into a sanctions war with China, it, it would be unlike any other sanctions program or policy we've ever had before. A big sanctions program against China could have huge repercussions and could wind up in unpredictable places and could be really problematic for the world economy. And so I think the U.S. is, and I, in my view, rightly shying away from that. But, but, it, but it's really hard to both shy away from real sanctions while at the same time looking tough on sanctions, because right. if you're, you're really going to um, go after the Chinese government for these practices, you're going to have to do a, a lot more than this. Yeah, we'll see if we've, we'll see if we hit the tipping point on that. It's never out of the question that we could. Uh, but um, yeah, for now, it doesn't seem that we have. So um, let's leave that for now. And let's move on to another one of our favorite topics, which is Huawei and specifically um, two threads of Huawei discussion, which are stockpiling and extradition. All right. Well, so we're still on China because we really haven't seemed able to leave that in the last two episodes, but that's because we talk about the things that are biggest in the trade law area. And China is just by far the biggest space right now in the trade law area. Uh, and, and Huawei, I think, is the biggest target of U.S. trade sanctions against China. And that really has turned into something relatively big, although what the U.S. has seen with respect to Huawei, and we've talked about it frequently on this podcast, is that Huawei seems very uh, creative in the ways that it is able to essentially um, outrun whatever new sanctions measure that the U.S. has decided to impose upon it. And so after it went on the entity list, there were problems that the U.S. thought with, with Huawei being able to get certain types of U.S. technology, either using the de minimis rule or the foreign direct product rule, they were they they the U.S. decided that it had ways around those, um, and recently, originally, uh, proposed measures that would limit uh, the ability of Huawei as an entity list entity to uh, acquire products that were contained over 10% U.S. technology. Now that me measure uh, ultimately failed, as I understand it, and so so 25% is still the rule with Huawei, but, but recently the U.S. changed the rules with respect to the foreign direct product rule, made more U.S. technology subject to the foreign direct product rule in a way that was clearly, I mean, obviously and really quite unusually, 
targeted Huawei, its, its uh, subsidiaries, and really no one else. He created a whole new footnote regime in the entity list re related to the foreign direct product rule. So what happens? Well, recently we read reports that Huawei has stockpiled two years worth of semiconductors, the same semiconductors that these changes to the, the foreign direct product rule were aimed at. And so presumably Huawei, um, the, these rules won't affect Huawei for two years. And in the meantime, I, I feel certain that Huawei is trying to reconfigure its supply lines so that it doesn't need any US technology in those supply lines. We'll, we'll see whether it's successful in that. But I think that that is kind of the, 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 the shot fired back from the Huawei side. And we'll see, I, I think we can probably look forward in, in future episodes to talking about what the US government is going to do in response to Huawei's um, stockpiling of years, apparently years and years worth of, of semiconductors. Yeah, so a couple, just a couple of quick comments on that. So the report, and apparently this is coming straight from Huawei, is that Huawei spent over $23 billion stockpiling chips and other materials just last year, which is a massive uptick from the prior year, not surprisingly. And that, and that essentially the, the reporting on this um, is that this effort began when Huawei's CFO, who we're gonna talk about in just a moment, was arrested in late 2018 because they, they sort of saw the writing on the wall that more, uh, that harsher measures, more restrictions were coming from the U.S. And so they implemented this plan to sort of stockpile. So that's that's interesting, number one. Number two, whenever you're talking in this space and in this in this universe, telecom, you know, high-tech uh, semiconductors, and in particular, we're not just, for those who know the difference, we're talking about CPUs, we're talking about uh, field programmable gate arrays, we're talking about other types of um, technology like that. Um, whenever you're talking about holding that those types of materials for any length of time, they typically become obsolete very quickly. So you're you're going to be generations behind before you can say, uh, you know, boo. And on top of that, the other the other issue that they're going to face, which uh, there, this was touched on a little bit in the reporting, and this is something that we've we've seen in our own experiences is that um, if they're if they're stockpiling essentially off the shelf semiconductors the customization that they need for their own um, hardware and their own systems is not going to be as readily available because that's the whole point of having cut them off from the foundries and from their own proprietary designed chips is that they that that goes out the window and now they're potentially stuck with things that are not quite to spec or to their own um, to meet their own needs and so what happens there is you know what's a viable alternative it seems the most likely viable alternative would be that their own chip producer high silicon would be the ones to try to ramp up here but they are caught by the new rules as well so they're yeah. sort of hamstrung equally uh, and reports again are that they are in any event some years behind being able to produce at a level that some of the, these foundries who are now no longer going to be able to produce Huawei chips can produce. So that's just a, a and, and on top of that, one last thought, 
never underestimate the, um, maybe this is exactly what the US government knew was gonna happen and they're happy to hear this happen and they say, well, great. Now Huawei's tech is gonna be, or their chip capabilities are kind of frozen in time, frozen in amber as a result of this. So that's fine, we can live with that. I, I also wouldn't be surprised if they hear this and see this and in our and our maybe weren't anticipating it and then make some further modification to somehow try to undercut this maneuver because it seems that they're trying to whatever whatever moves are being made by Huawei there is there is there is a mirror image response or at least an attempted mirror image response from BIS and the U.S. government at some point down the road so. I don't know what that will be. I don't know, uh, again, whether this is played exactly into their hands or whether this is something that's gonna come as a bit of a surprise, but stay tuned for more on this because um, I'm sure that we will be we will be coming back to this uh, again. It's a, it's a cat and mouse game, but it's yeah. not clear who's the cat and who's the mouse. <laughs> yeah, and, and speaking of which, I think, the, I think the mouse, the very well-off mouse who is living in a rented mansion outside of, or no, I'm sorry, not a rented mansion, in one of her family's mansions outside of Vancouver is uh, Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei. And there was a, there was a court ruling in Canada that came down that, that Tim's going to cover next, which I think we have a couple of thoughts on as well. Yeah, no, it was, it was a pretty interesting court ruling. And, and I think it's probably the first of at least a few court rulings. Um, as, as folks will remember, Ming Wanzhou is the, or I think she still is the CFO of Huawei. She's the daughter of the founder of Huawei. Um, and uh, about a year ago, she was uh, changing planes in Vancouver when she was arrested on a, a U.S. arrest warrant and request for extradition. So she was arrested by Canadian authorities, and she's been held, as you pointed out, Brian, in um, in in her her family's house uh, near Vancouver for the last year, awaiting extradition proceedings. And the first aspect of her extradition proceeding was completed last week with the, the decision from the Canadian judge uh, upholding the request from a dual criminality standpoint. And so we've talked on the program before about the extradition standard of dual criminality and that that basically means that in order to have an extraditing company or country extradite someone back to your country, whatever law you're, you're proceeding under, and here it's the U.S., whatever U.S. law you're proceeding under, has to also, Canada has to make the same sort of conduct illegal. And so the, the trick here is that the underlying kind of cause of Meng Wanzhou's detention is that she was being investigated for violations, or Huawei was being investigated for violations of the U.S. sanctions against Iran. And Canada does not have any sanctions against Iran. So, so trade with Iran is, is completely legal under Canadian law, um, but it's obviously illegal under, the, under U.S. law. And so... so uh, that was kind of the sticking point and, and the premise for Meng Wanzhou's uh, argument that there was no dual criminality. Now, the problem with that argument was that she, Meng Wanzhou has also been charged with bank fraud. And, and the bank fraud arose, allegedly, when she was in a restaurant in Hong Kong and she was meeting with HSBC representatives and she was trying to explain to them that there was really no improper link between Huawei and a company called Skytech in Iran that 
apparently Meng Wanzhou had previously been on the board of directors of. Now she'd left the board of directors, but Huawei maintained apparently some sort of, this is the government's theory, maintained control over SkyTech at the time that Meng Wanzhou was saying that there was no relationship between Huawei and SkyTech. And so the, 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 and, and, at least allegedly, those statements about the lack of relationship were critical in helping Huawei obtain funding from HSBC. And so that's the bank fraud charge. And under Canada law, Canada has bank fraud laws, and you can't make a false statement in order to get money from a bank. And I think the, those laws are pretty universal. And so the U.S. was arguing, well, this is this is clear dual criminality. There, this is a bank fraud charge, and Canada has bank fraud laws, and the U.S. has bank fraud laws. So we it's Ill, what the conduct she is uh, charged with is illegal in Canada, and and so we can extradite her to the U.S. to face the same charges here. Now the 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 gray area is that is that. Uh, and this is what Meng Wanzhou's lawyers argued, was that, well, but the bank fraud charge is, is inextricably tied up with the U.S. sanctions against Iran. And so the only reason that these, these uh, statements were material at all was because the bank was concerned with violating U.S. sanctions against Iran. And so when the, the underlying charge, even though it might be uh, you know, on its face, a crime in both countries, where the underlying charge is tied up with something so closely that is a crime in one country but not a crime in the other, you shouldn't find dual criminality. And there, as I understand it, in the opinion, the, the court discusses an old Canadian precedent under the Fugitive Slave Act, where, where someone uh, who, who was being pursued by the U.S. under the Fugitive Slave Act, kind of hearkening back to what we talked about before, um, Canada viewed that as a law, not only did Canada not have slavery, but Canada viewed that law as a law that it would not enforce. And so even though um, the, the U.S. government was arguing in that case that, this, that the extradition was proper because Canada has fugitive laws, Canada decided that the fugitive uh, charges were so inextricably tied up with a law that they didn't recognize and wouldn't enforce that, uh, that the extradition couldn't go forward. And so Meng Wanzhou was relying on that precedent as, as a, to support her argument that the bank fraud charges were too tied up with the sanctions. The court rejected that, um, but it did note that this was an open question, that it was a tough area of law. The court rejected the argument under the theory that the, um, the Fugitive Slave Act was so much more onerous under Canadian law and so much more uh, essentially disapproved of under Canadian law than the U.S. sanctions against Iran that you couldn't equate the two cases. But, but it was an issue that I think even the court admitted was a pretty close call. And I, I suspect that this, is, we, we may not have heard the last of, of this issue in the extradition proceedings. Yeah, I think the, so, um, you know, I think the, the idea that sort of fraud is fraud is kind of fundamental to the approach that the U.S. takes to extradition from friendly countries where we have uh, extradition treaties uh, in in sort of this space in the in this sort of tr sanctions export control white even many white other white collar crime space um, and and the you know the comments from the judge essentially acknowledge that and essentially say look I'm not going to I'm not going to sort even though there are differences between domestic U.S. law and Canadian law with respect to sanctions at the end of the day fraud is fraud and it's 
it is legitimate to, to pursue a fraud charge essentially against a, an individual or an entity that through their fraudulent statements may have induced uh, a bank to violate these sanctions, right? That was, a, that was essentially the analysis that she came down with. And, but I agree with Tim that this, we've not heard the last of this and, and, it, and it's, um, this, is, this is a flavor of this argument gets presented in just about every extradition proceeding that really gets contested anywhere in the world when U.S. sanctions are somehow involved and, 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 um, and they're, we're seeking extradition of somebody to be, to be sent back to the U.S. So it's not, this is not really novel. Canada is, and as many would suspect, is, is generally going to be a more, um, is going to be more amenable to extradition requests from the U.S. that are coming in this vein. This is obviously so high profile, and this particular defendant has such, you know, essentially endless resources that I, this is good, this is likely to drag on for a few more years. My understanding is that there's going to be sort of a Fourth Amendment style hearing to to deal with whether the search of her and her phone at the airport was legal. There's going to be potentially an appeal of this ruling, as Tim alluded to. There's potentially going to be another preliminary hearing that's going to look at sort of sufficiency of the evidence. There's going to be a number of steps before we ever get to whether there's a go, no go on the extradition. And then my understanding is even after the court rules on that, that there's somebody in the sort of Canadian if executive branch, essentially the minister of justice has to just has to sort of green light that to finally go through. So, um, so we haven't heard the last of this. This is, um, and, and also in the background, keep in mind that her very presence in, in Canada is a major tension point between China and Canada. There are Chinese, there are Canadian citizens currently being held in China that are largely viewed as being held for retaliatory purposes. And of course, with the deteriorating uh, relationship between the U.S. and China, this just kind of makes all of this all the more complicated. So there's a lot of moving parts here. There's a lot of um, question marks. I think as we go forward, it's not surprising that that this hurdle was overcome from a uh, keeping things on track toward potentially an extradition because um, it would have, quite frankly, been shocking if if the, the judge had ruled otherwise. In my view. Um, but there are many other hurdles to get over here, and, and so we'll have to see. But, um, but yeah, the, the gray area Tim identified will, is, is an interesting one, and will be interesting to see if there's further um, parsing of this at the appellate level in, in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, you know, as you said, Brian, there, there are also a couple more steps left. As I understand it, uh, Canada's extradition laws require, in terms of whether there's sufficient evidence to extradite require a consideration only of the quote admissible evidence. And so, as I understand it, there's gonna be a hearing about one key piece of evidence. I think uh, uh, um, Mrs. Meng's cell phone was uh, confiscated and then searched after she was arrested. So yep. there's gonna be a hearing about whether that was allowable under Canada law and then and that will determine whether or not that evidence is quote admissible under the terms of the extradition statute. And then if assuming it, whether it is or it isn't, the court will then go to the question, I think, of whether or not there's uh, sufficient evidence to extradite. And so it right. would, it's definitely, there definitely is gonna be more, there definitely is, gonna, this is gonna take a while. And from seeing some Canadian legal experts kind of weigh in on this, they are forecasting this could still be years in the making. And and so we, we have, we, we 
you know, God willing, if Tim and I are still here doing the podcast in, you know, 2023 or something, maybe we'll, we'll finally have, uh, we'll finally have resolution on this, but it could be, could be a while. Um, so with that, let's, let's pivot to our last big topic, which is, um, the, the big indictment that was unsealed in the district of Columbia last week relating to a massive, sanctions evasion and money laundering scheme having to do with the foreign trade bank of uh, North Korea. And to, to very briefly summarize this for anybody who hasn't seen it, um, essentially the foreign trade bank of North Korea was put on the SDN list back in 2013 for its role in North Korea's ballistic and uh, ballistic missile and nuclear programs. And Essentially, the indictment alleges that right after that, or shortly thereafter, um, a massive effort uh, started up, you know, originating in the North Korean government, the top officials at the Foreign Trade Bank, and then a number of other confederates to uh, basically stand up all around the world, um, literally hundreds of front companies that would allow the Foreign Trade Bank and the North Korean government to still have access to the U.S. financial system. And this was done in China and in Russia and in Europe and in the Middle East and in many, all literally all around the world. And, uh, and so um, in some ways this, and, and to the tune of over $2 billion worth of transactions that were allegedly um, routed through these front companies uh, that touched on U.S. correspondent banks that would have been violative of, of the North Korea sanctions. Um, and so, and in, con- in conjunction with this, there's also a big uh, civil forfeiture piece to this of over $60 million that have been frozen in various accounts that are linked to this uh, alleged conspiracy. So um, a, couple of, a couple of quick thoughts on this, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Tim. So number one, um, you know, we just talked a few episodes ago about the big UN report that detailed many of these same types of practices coming out of North Korea in terms of sanctions evasion, money laundering, et cetera, and how th- those continue and have in some ways perhaps even grown over the past few years. Um, and then there was the, the similar, uh, or simultaneously essentially, there was a report from the US government on malicious cyber activity of, of the North Koreans and, and many of the sanctions evasion tactics were, were detailed in there as well. Um, so this is not, in some ways, not new news, but at the same time, I think the scope and breadth of this is pretty um, interesting to note. That's number one. Uh, number two, um, the indictment itself is essentially just a laundry list of transactions that occurred over the course of the last you know, six or seven years relating to the front companies many Chinese companies, many Chinese banks that are un, most of whom are unnamed or, or there's China, Chinese bank one, two, three, and four, which I'll come back to in a moment. Um, and so in some ways, this is, this is also a bit of a, um, you know, sort of a, for your compliance toolkit out there, anybody at banks or were on the U S side of this, because there are some, there is some allegation that some of this was used not to just get U S dollars, but also to um, obtain, goods from the U.S. Uh, is, is something to keep in mind and to bear in mind and to sort of review for, for those purposes. Um, the third piece is, is exactly what I just alluded to about the, the role of China in all of this. So, um, you know, so a couple of, couple of thoughts on that. So this indictment was returned earlier this year. It came back in February and it was just unsealed last week, which the timing of that is a bit curious because um, 
there was clearly no um, intention or thought that they were going to arrest anybody in, conject in, in connection with this because these are people that are generally beyond the U.S. Uh, government's reach unless they get lucky and somebody travels to a friendly jurisdiction or to the U.S. itself. Um, and it may have been that they wanted to wrap up some of the forfeiture activities that they were trying to have in place before this went public. Um, but, but the timing is, is interesting because obviously with everything we've been talking about with China and the, dis and the desire to sort of keep up the steady drumbeat of sort of poking China in the eye, um, this, this is the timing of this seems very purposeful from that perspective. But I would add two, two points, two last points, and then I'll put it to Tim. So um, number one, obviously, these Chinese banks are not named. Um, and, and perhaps that is consistent with what we talked about earlier, which is um, maybe a desire to, but not the willingness as of yet to really, um, to really hold those banks to account, to put them on the SDN list, to charge them uh, in a criminal uh, court in the US, and, and really potentially um, you know, spin up some real chaos uh, if that were to happen. Um, but it is a bit of a shot across the bow because it's, I'm sure, not that not that difficult for those who are intimately aware of the details to figure out perhaps what banks these are. Um, so that's number one. Number two is um, there was uh, there was a relatively, although this did receive a lot of press coverage at the time um, that it was unsealed, there was no big. Um, press release or press conference from DOJ, which is pretty typical in these types of cases, because as, as many have pointed out, the, the primary purpose often with these is to name and shame the people involved and to make a big public show of this for deterrent effect so that people become, both the people who are need to comply with these situations and maybe encountering these types of actors are aware of them and, and can better tune their compliance procedures to deal with that. And also that it just lets everybody involved know, we know what you're up to. We have what we believe to be a, you know, a chargeable prosecutable case that we are, we have brought in a U.S. court. And, you know, in terms of travel and other activities that are now potentially um, in jeopardy or off the table for some of these people, that becomes kind of a centerpiece of some of these things. But there was a relatively muted, again, um, kind of public rollout of this from the DOJ perspective. I don't really have a good explanation for that. I was involved in many of these back in the day, and there was always a huge um, effort to really make a splashy um, sort of uh, impact when these things uh, got unveiled, and that didn't really seem to be the case here. Although, again, it was covered pretty extensively in in the, the Washington Post and the New York Times and, and many of the other outlets that follow this stuff closely. So, that's a lot. Uh, that's th those are sort of my laundry list of thoughts on this for the moment. And then I'll kind of turn it to Tim for for his reactions as well. Yeah, I, I think you've about covered it, Brian. But I do I, a couple of key takeaways for me were just a reinforcement of this kind of China North Korea link and and Chinese financial institutions you know whether it's whether it's through the enforcement policies or through the sanctions authorities generally with if the US chooses to go after Chinese financial institutions it's going to be a, a really uh, big fundamental shift in enforcement practice and sanctions practice and and could have significant repercussions. And it looked like this indictment was aimed at some Chinese banks here um, and kind of flagging the link to North Korea is something that it's not new, but it is kind of a, a, a big data 
point in terms of that link and, and something that companies ought to take into account in terms of another red flag? We should add, we should, I should add quickly too, there could be more coming on that front, definitely, because those banks are not named. Right. They could theoretically be teed up to be added to the SDN list or right. there could be additional criminal charges just gonna, coming. Perhaps. I, that's just where I was going to go. Yeah, is that, is that, no, 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 no. I, I think that, that it's good that you jumped in to add that because I, I think um, that basically the fact that those banks aren't named tells me that one of a couple things could be going on. I mean, the first is that, uh, and I've worked on cases like this, I'm sure you have too, Brian, where there is a plan at the time of the indictment uh, to arrest somebody. They have a plan in the works and, uh, it, and, and it's, you know, a, a relatively concrete plan and it just doesn't happen. And, and, or if it happens, it doesn't come to fruition because they can't get extradition there. They're, it just, they, they have a plan. They keep the indictment sealed because they're trying to execute that plan. And at some point it becomes clear that that plan's not going to work. And at that point, the indictment becomes unsealed. That might explain why they weren't anxious to have a press conference because if they're, their point here was to actually, um, uh, you know, get some, get, get, bring some, some people into the courts of the United States and that didn't happen, um, you would understand why they didn't have a press conference. Although I agree with you that I think that the, the, the unsealing probably was more related to uh, the, the forfeiture proceedings and trying to, to lock down at least some of the funds. Um, but, but I, I also think that, as you said, Brian, it, it, this, it, that there probably or could be other proceedings going on, either um, at within the courts. It could still be that you know one or more of these banks are cooperating, and that that's might have been how they found out about it, and so they're still thinking about what to do about the other banks, either through um, the 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 criminal justice system or through OFAC. Could be about to go on the SDM list. There could be an enforcement action because, as I understand it, at least some of these transactions involve connections to the U.S. financial system. So, if that's the case, then there could be penalties coming and there could be negotiations going on about a penalty. And so they've decided not to make the names public for that reason. I mean, that at least was allegedly what was happening with Hulk Bank. And ultimately, Hulk Bank got indicted in the, the Zarab um, Attila proceedings. Ultimately, Hulk Bank is now in front of the court in New York out of those same proceedings. And that could happen here, um, or at the very least, there could be an OFAC action that is going on. But I, I do think that when you look at it now, things do look a little bit weird where there's really no one who seems to be the apparent target of this, this uh, other than just kind of sending a message and then you don't have a press conference that sends that message. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, agree. So we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, we may very well be coming back to that one again in the future. Um, and uh, so with that, that, that wraps up kind of the main portion of the show. Uh, and, and we have, uh, reached uh, everybody's favorite portion, which is the lightning round. Um, and so with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Mr. O'Toole to uh, take us down to Venezuela for the latest happenings down there. So we can be very quick on, on this lightning round. Um, sometimes there's more to say, but here we did want to pause and talk about a, a, another uh, designation of four vessels. This took place on June 2nd, recording on June 5th, so it's only a few days ago. Um, the, the stated ground for the designation of the vessels is that they were working to assist uh, the Maduro regime and 
I think the statement from Secretary Mnuchin was that they have enlisted, that the Maduro regime has enlisted the help of maritime companies and their vessels to continue the exploitation of Venezuela's natural resources for the regime's profit. So the allegation was that these vessels, I believe, were carrying uh, oil for the Maduro regime. Now, the, the designation was not particularly clear about what in particular about these transactions um, really aided and abetted the Maduro regime. I've heard rumors that, that they were involved with um, other illicit activities or other sanctionable activities that uh, the US government has been interested in, and, and namely the, the oil for food program, although that's just a, a rumor I've heard. So, so it's not in any of the statements, but I, I do think that um, you know, as we go on, when you're looking for a pattern here, the pattern is that the designations take place uh, the, there's an announcement that wh whoever was designated was doing something to help the Maduro regime, but, but the authorities are often very tight-lipped on exactly what that was. And the, the, you know, that, that is, I, I guess, um, a strategy that they're using, but it does make it difficult to advise people as to what you know, it, it involves illegitimately acting within the Venezuelan oil sector um, and what doesn't because there are certainly participants in the Venezuelan oil sector right now that are that are not being sanctioned, and so it's very hard to draw the line between the good side of the line and the bad side of the line. You have to do a lot of work behind the scenes in order to do that. So, on from our end, it it really it really is um, it, it creates problems in line drawing. Maybe from OFAC's perspective, they don't want you to know what the line is so that you don't go anywhere near it. Yeah, and I'll just add very quickly um, that uh, I, I noted that the four companies, so four companies and four vessels were added, and the four companies um, are from, respectively, are from either the Marshall Islands or Greece. And so um, just for, again, we talked about the Maritime Advisory the last time uh, on the last episode, but just for anybody out there in that space, um, I think a good reminder, those are obviously two big players kind of in, in the, you know, the maritime industry, uh, many vessels flagged from those locations. Um, just another kind of reminder in terms of diligence and compliance to, to be on the lookout for red flags and other things, because, uh, you know, obviously here now we have sort of explicit connections with the, with the Venice, with sanctioned conduct in, in Venezuela and, and just sort of more to, more to consider, think about and be on the lookout for, for anybody that's, um, doing that kind of vetting. So, uh, and with that, that was truly pretty lightning. That's about as lightning fast, as, we ever, right? as we ever get. So let's stay on the seas. Uh, item number two is actually, um, a little bit of an older item. This, this came up, um, last uh early in may and i think it was just uh we never got to it in part because of our very china focused uh agenda of, of late but um criminal charges were filed in uh dc against two iranian nationals relating to sanctions violations and money laundering violations for the purchase of a, a petroleum tanker and um this is notable so the, the underlying facts here are basically these two individuals um, working through a front company or front companies rather managed to purchase a petroleum tanker um, from a Liberian company. And there were a couple of payments made. The, the payments um, implicated uh, one of them transited the U.S. Uh, financial system, the, the, addition, the initial down payment. And then the second one was sent through the U.S. financial system and was blocked because the bank apparently 
um, the correspondent bank uh, recognized that there was a problem and a potential connection to Iran and and blocked it. There's also a related forfeiture proceeding to get all of the funds that were involved in the in the transactions. And so I think I think in some ways and and the the allegation is that um, the the tanker was then as soon as it was uh, taken possession of, it was quickly deployed for the benefit of um, the Iranian government, the National Iranian Oil Company, NIOC, and that one of the lead uh, defendants in the case has ties to IRGC cuts force. So, um, so that's uh, that. Those are sort of the the overarching facts there. I think the quick takeaway here, to harken back to what we just talked about with the North Korea um, case a few minutes ago, is is the um, is again just sort of the uh, the idea that um, the the touch with the U.S. correspondent bank account. And you know the the idea that even when um, it doesn't it doesn't appear to to sort of my reasonably well trained eyes that this scheme was sort of all that sophisticated or well thought out and that the front companies that were put in place and the way these things were set up and routed were were not done with sort of the level of sophistication that maybe even in the North Korean case they were but I think it's just another reminder that um, you know from a due diligence perspective and and from a red flag perspective understanding you know ultimate beneficial ownership apparently there was some there were some concerns and red flags relating to the 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 front company um which by the way was which is known which is taif um is the name t-a-i-f and they were added to the um they were added to the sdn list in connection with this case as well there were some concerns that they had no no experience and no business buying a a tanker like this and apparently somebody in the chain or a related vouch for them that's what's alleged so you know that's kind of a good example of maybe where somebody was pushing back and then ultimately they were um not no pun intended kind of sold a bill of goods as to somebody's credentials and then some and things were allowed to go forward when they really probably should have been stopped at that point so um that's really all i have on that one and i'll flip it to tim for any quick thoughts yeah, I mean, I just think that this is just another example of the importance of due diligence in the shipping industry. And, and you know, we talked about the Maritime Advisory recently and that, you know, that, that OFAC has been really saying that this is a high-risk industry. And if you're doing transactions in that industry, you just need to be very, very careful because if you're not, um, you can run into problems like, ran, like the, the, the ship sellers ran into in this case. All right, and with that, uh, I think we're about to wrap up maybe our fastest lightning round ever by heading to our last topic, which is uh, the announcement from May 22nd of a number of entity list additions and the curious delay in, in actually seeing those additions on the list. Right, so on as you mentioned, Brian, on May 22nd, so, you know, what two is weeks that? ago. Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. It's the last time we recorded the podcast. Um, actually, right after the podcast, because right after we recorded it, BIS announced that it was adding 33 Chinese entities to the entity list. They were doing that because of the the links between these entities, what BIS viewed as the links between these entities and the Chinese military. Um, and there was an announcement. And then nothing. And normally, you know, the announcement accompanies a Federal Register notice, or if it doesn't accompany it, you know, it's the following day or the following business day. But May 22nd, you know, May 29th comes, a week passes, still no word. This week comes, um, still no word. And as of the time that we were really putting together the agenda for this, there was still no word. Well, today, um, 
the BIS published a notice in the Federal Register uh, with these entities putting them by on the, the By the way, I will, I will interrupt you to say that I'm checking right now and it still does not appear to be up. No, no, I've got it in front of oh, me. Oh, you do have it up. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, okay. so I, I have it in front of me. Um, it, your your it, Googling it, skills or your right. maneuvering of the Federal Register homepage is better than mine. While yes. recording a podcast on camera. <laughs> um, right. So, so yes. So it's at 85 FR 34495 is where you can find it. But, but the, so they, they have added this to the entity list. We heard word yesterday that they were going to, because there is a service that will give you um, previews of the Federal Register the day before. And, and one of the, the great trade lawyers in Washington, Doug Jacobson, is very, very facile in that list. And so he always has this information before anybody else does. And so- Has Doug, it up on LinkedIn and Twitter before you can blink, basically. Exactly. So exactly. shout out so, to Doug. <laughs> exactly. So if you want to know what's happening, particularly with respect to BIS, um, Doug always knows before anybody else does. And he did here. So we saw that this was coming last night from, from Doug's Twitter feed. And, and it did show up this morning. And so it, it looks like a general federal register notice. There's not that much interesting about it. The effective date is today. So, so essentially the, these entity listings have become effective today. And the other, only other thing that's kind of interesting about it and, and the reason that we, you know, having announced that companies were going on the entity list, that creates concern, obviously, if you're trying to send U.S. origin goods to those companies, but they didn't tell anybody what the restrictions were. And so, you know, the entity list varies in terms of what the restrictions are. Sometimes it is only certain items are restricted. Sometimes there's a licensing policy that is a presumption of grant for certain items, case by case for certain items, presumption of denial. And if you don't know what the requirements are in the licensing policy, you're basically stuck. And so for two weeks, companies have been stuck in terms of doing business with these entities. And, and unlike many of the entities on the entity list, some of these companies um, not only are outside of China, so they're, they're subsidiaries, but they're pretty big. And so, so this is not like an entity list listing of some like really small minor company that did a few things that the U.S. didn't like and, and really doesn't um, do that much business with the U.S. These are some pretty big companies. And so that was kind of a two-week period of uncertainty that was pretty unusual. Ultimately, I've looked through the list and it looks like all of the entities now have a licensing requirement for all items subject to the EAR. So any U.S. origin good, um, including EAR 99, requires a license now to sell to these companies. And uh, there is a presumption of denial. So, so it's going to be very hard to get a license. So pretty much these companies are off limits to U.S. origin goods um, yeah. as a practical matter. Yeah, I'll just add very quickly. Um, so, you know, 33 entities altogether, including so many big companies, as Tim said, some some universities and research institutes as well, um, and uh, put on the list for a variety of reasons. In the press release, it was identified as sort of you know military and use cons considerations and concerns, or uh, human rights uh, considerations and concerns, tying back to our first topic. Um, relating to the Uyghurs and surveillance technology that's used with respect to the Uyghurs and other ethnic and Muslim uh, populations in China. Um, and so the, I think the interesting question for us coming out of this was, you know, in that two-week window, and there is, and again, I haven't had a chance to review it, but our, my understanding is that there was, there was a savings clause in there that basically says anything that's moving, that's being exported pursuant to either a no license required 
or a license exception or an existing specific license, if it goes by today, which is the day of the Federal Register notice and the effective date, then it's okay and you don't need to go to BIS for a specific for a new specific license. But after today, everything is everything is covered. Um, that two-week window where perhaps companies could have been scrambling to get things out the door on the hope that they could do it before the new um, rules came into play. Or as Tim said, you would find yourself essentially paralyzed because you just don't know what the scope of the restrictions are going to be. Um, you know, that presents some really interesting challenges, I, I presume. And I think if we were in this position, we would have probably taken the position that we would be on the phone calling BIS to try to get some clarity on, on timing or scope or what our particular situation was, if there was something that we felt we would, our client would be in, uh, you know, able to perfectly legally export um, in, you know, before the listing came down or the new restrictions came down, we would try to have that discussion, try to work that out. But it does present an interesting challenge when you're in that limbo period. And the two weeks, as Tim said, is a bit unusual. There's, that's, it's usually maybe a few days at most. Um, so two weeks is a little unusual. But as we've covered, hopefully with, um, ample uh, detail today in the past few episodes, there's plenty going on to occupy BIS and everybody else in the US government at the moment. So uh, perhaps the explanation is as simple as that, but. Well, the one thing that I will say, the other thing that's unusual, I was just looking at this notice because you know we ju it just came out. The, at the very end, it looks like uh, Secretary Ross signed it on May 15th. So there was a week delay before they announced it and then another two week delay before they actually released it, which is, pretty unusual. Which perhaps suggests that there could have been, as I am speculating, there could have been some discussions going on about a few shipments, transactions, or other things that they wanted to let essentially clear before this came down. That could very well be the case. Now that's us putting our tinfoil hats on a little bit, but that would not be out of the question if there were a few things where there was a persuasive case made that this should be allowed to go and um, maybe that was maybe that's what happened here. But that is a bit odd that it, we're looking at, you know, three weeks of delay from the signing until it sees the light of day. Um, you know, sometimes there there's wrangling behind the scenes for other reasons. But um, yeah, in any event, that is um, I think that's well, I'll take my tinfoil hat off now and 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 something uh, was happening. Leave it at that. Just, yeah, we just some, don't know what. We just don't know what. So. Um, I think with that, we are, we are wrapped for this week. Um, and, uh, thank you to everybody once again for, um, for tuning in, for downloading, for listening. Again, if you, uh, enjoyed the pod, please, we encourage you to subscribe, to give us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating, um, and to tell folks about it. We have, um, been getting some feedback from surprising and fun ways through some word of mouth. So that's always um, something we, we certainly enjoy. Um, please feel free to hit us up on LinkedIn, Twitter, or email if you have any comments, thoughts, questions, or anything else that you have about anything we covered or anything you want to see us cover in the future. Um, and uh, I think to harken back to what we started with today, we, we, we really do encourage everybody to uh, to stay safe out there, no matter what you're doing, um, whether at home or in the streets, um, and to, of course, stay sanctions-free. Stay safe, everybody. Thanks for listening, and stay sanctions-free. All right. Thanks. Until next time. Bye.